Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Anish Rajanandan, Assistant Professor of Accounting at the London School of Economics. We'll be discussing his new article, How Are Non-Financial and Financial Misconduct Related? You can find a link to the article in the liner notes of this episode. Anish, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Our topic today is your new paper, How Are Non-Financial and Financial Misconduct Related? Just to start us off, could you give us an overview of this piece and what prompted you to write it? Sure. Um, so part of what uh, got me to write it was just, it was almost opportunism. Uh, a lot of new, cool new data became available um, on non-financial misconduct that we just never really had before. And I'd kind of been wondering for a couple of years, just throughout my PhD, why uh, sort of nobody had tried to get at this question. So we know a lot about, for example, uh, the determinants of financial misconduct. We know a lot about, for example, how firms trade off uh, certain very specific non-financial decisions, for example, uh, maybe accelerating sales to hit a target. Uh, and so we know how we know a lot about how firms will trade off very specific non-financial decisions uh, with uh, financial decisions. So for example, uh, for the accountants out there, this is just kind of the trade-off between real and accrual earnings management, right? This, which is to say, do I cook the books or do I just kind of take decisions that are long-term foolish, but short-term uh, beneficial? Uh, but nobody had really been able to apply that to a kind of longer term setting. And the reason for that is um, accruals reverse. Basically, uh, if you cook the books now to make it look better, it's going to come back to bite you in the future. Uh, and so prior work on this kind of stuff had to focus on the short term almost by default. But a lot of financial misconduct uh, tends to be motivated by uh, longer term things. So saying not just how do we you know, make earnings this quarter, but how do we sort of convince investors that we're sort of long-term sustainable. And so to me, it was a question where um, even though it's like kind of an extension from, uh, it, it's in one way, it's an extension of a question, but in another way, it's a totally different question uh, because the incentives at hand are quite different. Uh, and so nobody had sort of tried to bring this link to the case of outright misconduct. Uh, and then sort of more generally, um, I think it's always tricky to try to you know, generalize something that's shady but legal into the, uh, you know, in something that's actually illegal. I mean, you can think of it basically like lawyers would tell you to do one thing and tell you not to do the other, right? And in some sense, so the, the decision-making process that leads to misconduct uh, is probably going to be quite different from the decision-making process that leads to uh, sort of stuff that's within the boundaries of the law. And so I, I really just wanted to see if something that we sort of take as common knowledge, um, if it's actually common knowledge, if we try to extend the definition of what is sort of what is non-financial misconduct and what is financial misconduct? So when I sort of came into this data, I realized, look, I can answer a question that nobody's really, uh, I'm sure a lot of people have thought about it. It's just something that we haven't been able to answer for data reasons before. And so let me try to see if I can be a first mover on this. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of, I mean, the, sort of what got me into it. It's a question that I think I and many others had. It's not a particularly, uh, I think, novel question, but I think it's just, it's a question we haven't really been able to answer in the past. So your research is really focused on the question of when are financial misconduct, for example, accounting uh, violations, 
when are they concurrent with non-financial misconduct, which a good example from your paper is a wage hour violation where somebody is probably not exempt from overtime, but I decide to uh, improperly classify that person or a lot of people uh, as exempt from overtime so that I can reduce my uh, overtime expense. Uh, could you describe a kind of how you set that question up and maybe empirically how you, you went to test that question? Sure. So actually, uh, I'll, you know, to answer to that very specific example, what got me interested was um, actually, so I just kind of looked through this data and I was trying to figure out, okay, what's in here? What are the big cases? What are companies actually doing? Right. Because it's easy to sort of read the news and read about, um, oh, you know, a company did this or a company um, didn't pay overtime. But I wanted to see sort of what are companies actually sort of systematically getting penalized for uh, to get a better sense. And so in a sense, it's, it's data driven. In a sense, I saw, hey, look, a lot, there's a lot of these big, uh, you know, these big issues pertaining to underpayment of wages pertaining and one one example that sort of really got me was uh, IBM in 2004 because I got my PhD at Stanford and I was in Silicon Valley. Um, and so IBM in, I think it was 04, it might have been 05, uh, they started to have a pretty bad quarter. And so they basically said, okay, we need to, uh, we need to cut employee-related expenses immediately. And they said, okay, well, so we can't really just do this in one way, so let's do multiple things. Let's misclassify our technicians and that'll take care of some of the, you know, some of the margin that we need to make up. Um, and then let's also um, sort of misrepresent the impact of expensing options. So it's basically, let's, here's a, here's a tool we have. We can cut employee-related expenses. Um, and if we do too much of one thing, we might get caught. So let's do a little bit of one. Let's do a little bit of outright, just kind of not paying our technicians, and a little bit of the other, which is kind of uh, funny accounting over uh, the treatment of their options. And so to me, that was kind of a really salient example of um, this is something where uh, historically we would only have focused on the sort of option side of this. We wouldn't have really thought about the, um, the fact that they were concurrently doing uh, something related, but that would just kind of manifest in a different type of violation. And so I got into, you know, I got into wondering, is this kind of more of a systematic thing? Are there more companies that are kind of starting with something, something like, oh, we need to do X in order to make up, um, for example, a, uh, earnings. And then uh, saying, okay, we can do it. We can get a little bit here by cooking the books over here. And we can sort of tighten things over here in an operational sense. So basically trying to get a sense of, okay, so we have one main motivation. Uh, do we tinker with both the financial and the operational side, or are they really, truly separate? And so I, I was kind of interested in how uh, separate or similar uh, they are. And, and how were you able to, to test that from just a, you mentioned a, a new data uh, set became available uh, that allowed you to, to look into this question. Yeah. So that's um, a new database called uh, Violation Tracker. It's put out by a nonprofit organization called Good Jobs First. Uh, and what that basically does is it just kind of all the information in there is publicly available if you know where to look. Um, it just so happens that no one had really bothered to collect it on one place before. Uh, and so what they do is they basically say, let's take every major U.S. Uh, federal agency uh, and let's take basically all the uh, penalties they assess uh, to individual firms, uh, whatever the reason, uh, from 2000 onward. Uh, and so they just sort of kind of put that all into one place. And there's some information about sort of what the penalty was, uh, you know, who the company, you know, who the company that received the penalty was, 
the issuing agency, what it was for, uh, the amount of the penalty, uh, when it was assessed. Uh, and so you can kind of use that to match it up with existing data on uh, financial misconduct. And once you have that in place, once it's the, the real issue with this was getting the non-financial misconduct data, getting it cleaned up, um, you know, good jobs first. Uh, their main audience tends not to be academics, and so they tend not to uh, they tend to format the data in a way that's beneficial to uh, their main users, which tend to be policymakers, which tend to be think tanks. And so it took a lot of work to sort of get it into a format where I could merge it with the common um, academic data sets. But once once that was in place, it's a relatively straightforward thing to do. Um, and I think, to me at least, one reason this hadn't been done is just uh, a lot of the penalties are actually quite small. One kind of really interesting institutional feature to me is that uh, the penalties for financial misconduct tend to be, uh, there tends to be a lot of discretion. So, for example, the SEC has a lot of say in each individual case setting what the penalty is. And, you know, just because we uh, assessed a fine of $50 million to one firm doesn't mean we have to come after you for the exact same amount. Uh, but that's not really true for most other agencies. Uh, and so a lot of the penalties in here are actually pretty small. And so even if the, mis the underlying sort of misconduct that generated the penalty was pretty substantial, uh, the actual financial impact on the firm as, as far as what they would have to pay would be quite small. And so it just it's something that investors just might not have really been interested in because for the companies that are in here, we, we're talking companies with billions and, you know, in market value and market cap. Um, it's just not something that would materially affect their books. And so that might be why it's a question that no one's really bothered to ask for so long, I think. Did you find that there were certain types of penalties or violations that were more common than others? And maybe in terms of scale, how does that compare to uh, the number of uh, accounting enforcement actions uh, or investigations that the SEC or the, the criminal elements of the DOJ are able to do? Sure. Uh, so one other uh, major institutional difference is that uh, SEC and DOJ and you know a couple other agencies uh, they assess penalties in what I call an intent base basis, which is to say, it's not enough to say, oh look, you know the stock price dropped by a lot, you did something wrong. Uh, the SEC has to actually go and prove that um, somebody inside the firm intended to deceive investors, and that can take a lot of time. Um, it can take a lot of resources, and so the SEC conducts, for example, less than a thousand investigations a year, and uh, they might file a couple hundred enforcement actions a year, but. A lot of other federal agencies, actually most federal agencies, it's pretty cut and dry. Instead of being based on intent, it's, uh, they assess what I call outcome-based penalties, which is to say, uh, if you're the EPA, for example, we just need to show that your carbon emissions were too high. Uh, it doesn't really matter if you uh, meant, to, meant for them to be too high or not. So because we only have to prove what you did, not why you did it, uh, we can conduct a, many more investigations. So by way of example, uh, so OSHA works like this too. Uh, you know, the, the department, most of the Department of Labor's uh, kind of sub-agencies, OSHA, the Wage and Hour Division, the National, the NLRB, uh, they all kind of work like this. And so, uh, for example, like I said, there's about a thousand SEC investigations a year that might result in um, a couple hundred enforcement outcomes. Conversely, the Wage and Hour Division, for example, they, or the OSHA, for example, they have about 40,000 investigations a year. Uh, and that might result in about, you know, five to 10,000 enforcement actions in a year. Uh, now, obviously, the enforcement actions in here are a lot smaller. Uh, the SEC, we tend to think in terms of millions. The OSHA violations, we tend to think, we tend to think in terms of thousands. Uh, 
But in the case of the SEC, in the case of financial misconduct, uh, one thing you'll see in you know, the FT, the Wall Street Journal, the financial press is that it's just impossible for us to know, you know everyone who's cooking the books. It's just there's no way we can track everyone down. Um, that's not necessarily the case with these agencies like OSHA or the EPA. Uh, because they're able to conduct so many more investigations. So it sounds like the detection uh, of non-financial misconduct may be uh, the chances, the probability of detection might be higher than for uh, financial misconduct. Um, You found that firms concurrently engage in financial misconduct and wage and hour violations and environmental violations. Why might that be? and, And why might that result not have followed with other types of violations, for example, Uh, workplace safety or other forms of non-financial misconduct? Uh, Sure. So actually, just to clarify, I actually found uh, that firms concurrently engage in uh, financial misconduct and wage and hour violations. Uh, But the relation between uh, financial misconduct and EPA violations is actually not concurrent. What it actually is, is uh, firms start cooking the books, essentially, and then kind of next year or later on, they start uh, also engaging in sort of bad environmental conduct. Uh, but one, so one reason that it might be, for example, true of the wage and hour division, uh, whereas it, for example, I didn't, I don't find a relation, such a strong relation with OSHA. Uh, one reason might be, for example, the time it takes to realize the savings. Uh, so if I cut your wages now, I get that money right away. Uh, in the case of OSHA, it may not always be the case. And so I actually do have some weak results on uh, OSHA kind of later in the paper. I, what I do find is that uh, sort of consistent with prior work, OSHA and wage violations are sort of positively associated with companies under pressure to sort of meet or beat uh, earnings expectations. So basically, if a company is sort of at risk of missing an earnings target, I do find that sort of OSHA and wage violations go up. But yeah, for like, like you say, for the main, paper's main result is sort of more limited to wage violations. Uh, and that might, that could be for a couple of reasons. It could be one, like I said, wage violations they realized right away. Um, the other thing, and this is kind of more recent, is that um, executives are now can actually now be held personally responsible for uh, wage misconduct. So in some sense, the cost structure is more similar for financial misconduct and wage misconduct than kind of any other type of misconduct. Uh, the other thing that you can think about is uh, wage violations often realize, you know, come from kind of cost-cutting directives. And sort of one salient example is healthcare. Uh, so in the U.S., um, I'm I believe it's if you are an employee who works more than 30 hours a week, you're classified as full time, and that means the company has to give you health insurance. Um, and so, you know, if you don't want to pay for health insurance for thousands of employees, one thing you can do is to say make sure that these employees only report 29 hours a week, right? And that's something that kind of cost-cutting directive would come directly from the CFO. Uh, whereas, for example, deferring maintenance, right, that's more likely to come from the operations guys. And so it may be the fact that uh, my sample is limited to big companies. And so I acknowledge that as kind of a limitation. But you get a lot of decentralization in these uh, big companies. You get, um, for example, the CFO might not know everything that the COO is overseeing and vice versa. And so wage, wage violations are likely to come from um, basically uh, no matter who you know, directly violates the law, those directives are likely to come from the CEO and CFO, uh, whereas that might not be the case for other types of violations. Uh, and sort of, I guess, to, on the other one, on EPA violations, um, I think that's kind of just generally indicative of the fact that when you commit 
when you sort of commit environmental misconduct, uh, you don't always realize the gains right away. What you're really doing is kind of underinvesting in, for example, maybe proper waste disposal or proper like, uh, you know, you might be sort of violating the Clean Air Act. These aren't things that necessarily uh, give you benefits right away. They're things that reduce your kind of longer term costs. And so it kind of makes sense to me that financial misconduct would preclude, would precede this uh, because you say, okay, we have to, you know, we have to sort of hit a certain target. Let's cook the books a little bit. And then you realize that you're still not kind of long-term sustainable. So you start taking actions that actually sort of reduce your costs long-term. Uh, and sort of one kind of good example of long-term environmental misconduct would be the Volkswagen uh, diesel emission scandal that we kind of heard about in the last few years. Uh, so Volkswagen, uh, you know, so they, it's in, in basically skimping on their, uh, I hope I don't mangle too many of the details, but basically, you know, they skimped on their uh, diesel emission systems Right. So the cars were polluting more than the owners thought they were. Uh, and basically in doing so, that meant that they had they you know, they didn't have to make quite as much of an investment into new technology that would legitimately reduce uh, diesel emissions. And so that allowed them to produce, produce the car cheaper. And that's not a decision you take if you need to hit a target this year. That's a target. That's a decision you take if, for example, you say, OK, um, you know, this is a product line that's going to last for several years. Um, we're at risk of underperforming on this entire product line. So let's drive up the margin on not just a few cars this year. Let's drive up the margin on every car sold for the next, I don't know, five years. And so environment, and not to say, obviously not every incidence of environmental misconduct is that severe. That's probably one of the most severe uh, cases in the entire data set. But um, it's kind of indicative of the sort of thinking that goes into a lot of these environmental violations that they tend to be longer term. And that might be why sort of I see that financial misconduct precedes it. So basically you say, okay, let me just cook the books for now, see how it goes. And then you realize you've got structural problems. So you take a sort of more structural uh, solution, if you will. So there's some temporal effect where perhaps in this, this quarter, I need to make my earnings this quarter. And I do the direct and easy thing, which might be, for example, misclassifying employees. Uh, but that's kind of low hanging fruit. And once I've done that, it doesn't really help me in the next quarter, uh, per se, and I might look at more long-term misconduct opportunities to make that more sustainable uh, adjustment. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, you know, some of the non-financial misconduct that you found uh, or that you've looked at is really kind of based on, on the data set that you have. Based on kind of this temporal horizon point, are there other types of non-financial misconduct that might be out there that aren't necessarily captured by the data set that might be concurrent or that might precede uh, financial misconduct? Uh, so I, this is something I've, I've thought about because I worry that I'm not, you know, so obviously when I'm limited to this data, I can't really think of, I guess maybe the better way to think of that would be, I don't know that there's necessarily types of misconduct that are not captured. The one thing that kind of I'm more worried about is that there's, I may be missing instances of, you know, the types of misconduct that are already, that are already in here but for which there's kind of a different resolution. So for example, uh, let's say you get penalized by the state of California instead of uh, you know, the, the federal, uh, the US government, right? So let's say a lot of states have their own kind of environmental regulations, workplace safety regulators. And so let's say you get penalized by one of those guys instead of the federal agency, I wouldn't be able to pick that up. Um, and the other thing that kind of worries me or that I sort of would like to have more of than I do is data on lawsuits. 
And the reason for that is um, for financial misconduct, I actually measure it using a combination of um, SEC enforcement actions and uh, you know significant shareholder act or shareholder lawsuits that result in significant settlements. Uh, and you know these are both proxies that have been extensively used in prior literature and kind of generally it's generally accepted that these both serve as two of you know several proxies for financial misconduct. Uh, and so I have the uh, you know I have the analog of SEC investigations because I have the federal agency penalties. I don't have data on uh, lawsuits. I don't think it's as big of a deal as in the case of financial misconduct, and the reason for that is, um, you know, I'm I'm sure you've heard of uh, mandatory arbitration clauses, uh, and so a lot of things just, you know, obviously I I can't if I had data from arbitrators it'd be even better, but I don't think that's coming. Um, so a lot of I don't you know I'm not sure how much value lawsuit data would give me because a lot of things sort of almost by virtue of the employee's employee's contract with the employer would never make it to a lawsuit. Um, but it, I would like to, for example, test um, you know j- just to see uh, which penalties actually wind up in a lawsuit to the extent that that is possible. So that's kind of I'm not so worried about kind of the uh, the scope of the types of missing just outright missing certain types of violations. I am kind of worried about maybe I'm not capturing penalties assessed by other sources than what's in my data. Sure. And I think it's definitely, uh, definitely the case that many, many of these issues will, will not be seen publicly uh, due to, due to pre-dispute arbitration. Um, yeah. And yeah, if, if I had arbitration data, it'd be amazing, but I don't think that's something that arbitrators are willing to share. Yeah. It's kind of the, the confidentiality is, is both a, a feature and a bug depending on, on how one one views uh, views that process, um, yeah. Even, um, even in cases where non financial misconduct is concurrent with financial misconduct, you found that relationship to be insignificant with what you call high violation industries, uh, hospitality, for example. Could you explain that effect a bit and what it means for maybe the signaling value? Sure. Uh, so yeah. So just to kind of uh, rephrase what you just said, uh, I look at high violation industries and I look at the relation between the two types of misconduct in, you know, like you said, hospitality, uh, you know, uh, retail, things like that. Uh, And then kind of, I just look at other things. And I actually, I do find that my results are entirely concentrated in uh, industries in which you wouldn't expect to have a lot of uh, wage violations. Uh, To me, in a way that makes sense, because uh, what I'm really trying to pick up here is, you know, deliberate actions on the part of the firm. Right to say, okay, we need to, you know, to, to come back to the IBM example to say, we really need to make earnings. Let's just let's cook the books and screw over our employees and do it all at the same time, a little bit of each. The thing with the hospitality industry is that you, a lot of these violations might represent just, for example, uh, you know, the, guy, the the manager at the local McDonald's is a bit of a jerk, right? That doesn't necessarily say that much about uh, corporate culture. But because there's so many, uh, you know, there's so many branches, it's so labor intensive, uh, there's so many kind of wage rather than salaried employees. Um, in a sense, it's a bit, you know, it's obviously you'd prefer that these companies had fewer of these wage violations. But in a sense, you can't really disentangle, uh, you know, intent from top management from just, uh, you know, random stuff that happens uh, kind of on the ground level. Uh, whereas, and so, you know, you might see, uh, you know, you might see a bunch of wage violations, but unless it's something really systemic, you don't necessarily know 
that it represents kind of a, a strategic action at the firm level versus just something that's happening maybe in a few branches. Uh, but if you contrast that with a company like IBM, right? IBM's employees tend to be, you know, well-educated, uh, you know, skilled laborers, and there should be there shouldn't be too much of a reason to underpay them. Most of them are salaried. The ones that are wage workers are getting much higher wages than someone working at, you know, an entry-level job. And so these are companies that they, their volume isn't as high, but they're sort of they make money on margin, right? They make money on intellectual property. Uh, and so these are the companies that shouldn't have to be underpaying their employees because, you know, it's they're, it's really what their employee, you know, they're really making money off their employees' skills. And so when you see that these companies, the ones that are kind of where, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of underpayment here or there is not just something that might accidentally happen in, in the course of doing business, uh, it's a much stronger signal that something else is wrong in the firm. So essentially, when you observe non-financial misconduct, when you observe a wage violation specifically, um, at a company where, you know, it's most of the workers are sort of well-paid, well-compensated and do skilled labor. Um, that likely indicates that something is wrong and coming from the top. Whereas when you see a wage violation at, let's say, McDonald's, uh, you don't, it might be coming from the top, but it might just be something where uh, you have a couple of local managers, you have maybe 10 or 15 or 20 stores that are that have gone rogue. And it doesn't really reflect anything else, sort of any anything more big picture about the firm? A lot of this is really focused on what is within the realm of control from folks at the top, what is centralized, what might they, what levers might they use to uh, manage earnings in inappropriate ways. You also tested several corporate governance variables uh, for their ability to help detect financial misconduct. What did you find there? Uh, yeah, so I looked at um, a couple of things. I looked at internal controls and I looked at uh, board independence. There's more that I would have liked to look at, but you know, it's just kind of hard to figure out. And the reason this is actually more uh, to try to get a sense of the costs of misconduct, or at least the perceived costs for those at the top. Uh, the idea here is that is more. It's not so much that boards directly, you know, enable directly say you should do this, you should do that, but it's that, for example, maybe you know. Uh, a firm with good governance is likely to be is likely to be better at monitoring its uh, you know its executives and its employees, and so if I'm less likely to, for example, to suggest to uh, I'm, I'm less likely to give a directive that says um, you know you should underpay your workers if I know somebody on the board is watching me, uh, and in general you know we sort of and there's there's been some. Uh, you know, it's it, there's been some sort of back and forth in the governance literature, but in general, in general, we tend to view independent boards as having uh, better monitoring capabilities. And so I look at what happens uh, when board independence goes down. What happens when you replace an independent director with, um, you know, a director from within the firm, right? So somebody who might have a conflict of interest. Uh, and I show that when you decrease board independence, that's uh, you know sort of one of the main situations in which you see uh, the relation between uh, non-financial and financial misconduct uh, getting stronger. The idea being that when this kind of common cost goes down, uh, goes down, right? So when the monitoring goes down, uh, I'm I feel like I'm less likely to get caught, and so my perceived costs go down. Uh, and when when that cost goes down, you see that that you know both uh, types of misconduct go up, and that kind of shows that. Uh, at least to me, that they're positively linked. Uh, another thing I was trying to get at here was whether, the, in a way, they're substitutes, right? So to look at if something, 
And that's when I look at internal control weaknesses as well, because internal controls, um, at least this, uh, when an auditor discloses an internal control weakness, um, it might indicate you know, that the firm has bad controls in general, but the, uh, the internal control weakness specifically, uh, the auditor is only really talking about um, the, financial, the, the financial reporting capabilities, not the firm as a whole. And so, uh, you know, I can observe situations in which the costs of financial misconduct are lower, right? Because if, if the financial reporting environment is poor, uh, internal detection is less likely. But, uh, you know, it's something that doesn't affect the cost of non-financial misconduct uh, because those are operational decisions. And so I show there that, uh, you know, when internal control weaknesses happen, uh, it seems like firms substitute away towards more financial misconduct. So it's in, in a sense, it's trying to get at this, trying to um, reinforce my kind of main argument that these reflect opportunistic behaviors, not just uh, corporate culture. Getting to, I think this paper has a lot of kind of practical potential. Uh, and, and I kind of wanted to maybe close with that. What What use would the insights of this paper maybe have for the SEC or other securities regulators and being able to uh, improve their detection of financial misconduct. And I, I might ask that same question for uh, how would it be useful for external auditors, for example, to see if there are any red flags uh, that they might want to take a closer look or how might investors or markets be able to use these insights? Sure. Uh, so one thing is, and I, I didn't put this in the paper, but another thing I looked at was to say, okay, so I know the exact dates that these violations were announced uh, and do, you know, do investors react to them? And except for, you know, the very largest cases like, the, you know, Deepwater Horizon or, you know, Volkswagen or a couple of these other really high profile cases. In most cases, there appears to be no investor reaction, which is to say investors have historically not really uh, cared about this. Um, but one thing is, and that's, you know, like I alluded to earlier in the podcast, that's just, that's primarily because of materiality. Um, and so when the fines are small, if I'm an investor, I say, why do I care? It's just a cost of doing business. Um, but to the extent that if, if you're an investor, you care a lot about, uh, you know, the trustworthiness of, of the company's books. You want to know that the income is what, you know, the earnings number is what the company says it is. You want to know that, you know, for example, the sales growth is actually what they say it is. Uh, and so to the extent that this can, and so something that a lot of, especially for example, short sellers will do is to try to predict the likelihood that a company is lying to you, right? In its financial statements. And so to the extent that you, you know now that, oh, when they're engaging in non-financial misconduct, this actually kind of says something about uh, their financial reporting as well. Um, you now you you now become better at actually predicting something that is material, right? So we see that market reactions to you know SEC enforce, enforcement actions tend to be quite large. Uh, the enforcement actions themselves can you know have be can come with penalties in the tens of millions. Uh, and so the sort of the biggest benefit, at least to investors, of I think of this paper is to say, hey, look, this ESG you know environmental, social, and governance stuff, right? Um, there's been a bit of a sort of push towards it, or to you know towards more, I guess, what you might call social, uh, socially responsible investing. And um, there's a bit of pushback on that, and the pushback is along the lines of why should we care? Um, these guys, um, you know, why do you care about environmental attributes? That doesn't seem to predict financial performance. Uh, and so I can now kind of counter argue based on what I find is that 
sure, it may not, you know, it may not directly predict financial performance, but it does predict the likelihood of financial fraud. Uh, and to, to the extent that we care about that, we should be paying attention to this kind of smaller stuff too. Um, and sort of, and I guess the why would regulators care? Um, one thing to note is that, um, again, because of sort of the institutional features, because the SEC has to sort of prove that, you know, the company intended to mislead you while these other agencies didn't. Um, if I commit financial and non-financial misconduct right now, um, it's almost certainly the case that the non-financial misconduct is going to be detected first, right? And so if I'm the SEC and I could say, oh, this company seems to be having a lot of unusual non-financial misconduct violations, maybe it's worth investing some resources. So it's, in some sense, it could help. The SEC has limited resources. And, you know, so given sort of how labor-intensive and time-intensive each investigation it conducts is the SEC needs to be smart about the investigations it undertakes. Uh, and so this is kind of just another tool in the SEC's arsenal to say, hey, look, this is something else that's happening at the company. Um, and maybe it sort of, maybe it means we investigate one firm instead of another, right? Obviously, they know a lot of stuff that they never make public, right? But this is something that maybe could, on the margin, tilt their decision towards one, to investigating one firm over another. And so it's, it's almost as if, uh, particularly on the socially responsible investing piece, uh, an organization or leadership that uh, acts with integrity in one area is, is more likely to act with integrity in another. And uh, conversely, one that uh, lacks integrity in one area might might lack that integrity in another area. And we may care less about one area uh, just from a financial perspective, but uh, it, we, we may care a lot more about the the integrity of our of our financial statement. Yeah, yeah. So even if you're kind of so, I mean, one big reason that people care about this kind of uh, socially socially responsible investing is just you know it's it tends to be almost a thing of uh, a personal thing, right? To say I don't want to invest in companies that make the world a worse place, however you define that. Um, and so, but the, the, what this kind of says is even if you're just kind of a myopic investor, you just care about profits, you don't care about externalities. Um, it's still worth paying attention to some of the ESG stuff because that actually tells us more about what the firm might be doing. And it tells us more about the attributes that you as a myopic investor do care about. And for, for auditors, is this something that might be useful for them in, in terms of uh, scrutinizing a company a little bit more? Obviously, auditors, just as the SEC, have limited resources on, on any engagement and have to choose where to look uh, and want to, to delve into a little bit deeper. Is this something they could use? Could be. I, I don't see kind of as much of a first order uh, implication for the role of auditors, unless, of course, you know, so if, if we're talking things like regulation, it could be useful, for example, for auditors to or for, for, for there to be an audit of a company's non-financial uh, performance. Um, but I don't know. That's not, you know, it's not something that an auditor has to do at the moment. Um, and but it is something, for example, if a company wants to sort of have its uh, non-financial behavior voluntarily audited, that could be something which uh, may now be of value, right? To, ha to have sort of a third party come in and certify, um, you know, that, oh, this company is uh, behaves well. Or, or might it be the case that if an auditor, for example, goes on violation uh, tracker and sees that the company's had a lot of non-financial uh, violations, for example, wage and hour violations, they might uh, scrutinize or be, be concerned that there's some inappropriate management uh, of earnings going on? 
Sure. And it might also sort of make them look more carefully at uh, when they issue an, an internal control, when, essentially when they say that the company has an internal control weakness. Um, and it might also sort of, you know, in their, inter so they when they, uh, the auditor provides an opinion each year on the company's internal controls, you know, is it good? Is it sufficient? Is it not? And so maybe, for example, this could inform the opinion they provide on internal controls, and maybe they could incorporate even though internal control weaknesses nominally only reflect financial reporting, uh, there could be value in taking this into account when, uh, you know, when assessing that. Our guest today has been Anish Rajanandan. Anish, thank you for joining us on the Business Scholarship Podcast. Yep, thanks so much for having me.